Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link from the CBC, quote, We all make mistakes, says woman who got bit by an octopus she put on her face. (laughs) So the octopus made the mistake or she did? (laughs) You know, I think it's fair to say that mistakes were made. I never thought octopuses would eat my face. Too true. And and when we get into it, that was the perfect summation you could have possibly <laughs> Because when Jamie Biscaglia first put an octopus on her face, she says it felt squishy and fun. <laughs> the, fo- <laughs> the Fox Island, Washington woman was participating in a Tacoma fishing derby on the first weekend in August and wanted to help her friend get a good picture for the photo contest. Mm. Quote, The suckers weren't, like, strong. They just kind of crept all over my face and my nose and my ears. And then the freshly captured mollusk chomped down. When its beak entered my chin, it was the most intense pain, Mm. she said. It felt like a barbed hook. If I tried to release it off my face, I knew I was going to tear skin or flesh. Mm -hmm. Quote, I'm not here to, you know, try to make myself look good because I know I don't. We're human. Uh, We all make mistakes. (laughs) So she waited until the creature loosened its jaws a bit, then quickly hauled it off her face, just narrowly managing to free herself before it could bite again. uh, The wound was bleeding profusely, but Biscaglia played it cool. (laughs) Quote, I'm a strong-willed woman. I'm by myself on a boat. I've got five guys watching me, so I try not to act like anything major is going on. I grab my towel as it's bleeding, and I just keep it held to my face and go on fishing in the derby. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. In fact, Biscaglia kept on fishing through that Friday evening and into the next afternoon. She went home on Saturday evening, and when she woke up the next day, her face was completely swollen because the octopus was venomous. Oh, Oh, no. My eyes were swollen. I couldn't see very well out of my left side. My glands were completely swollen. Underneath my chin was a large pus pocket and then the left side of my face was completely paralyzed still she didn't panic she says she hopped in the shower cleaned her fishing gear and then headed straight to the hospital what (laughs) i oh my god like (laughs) quote there wasn't a second before they had me in a room because it was the rarest case they'd ever seen i was the talk of the hospital Well, she's out of the hospital and recovering now. She's taking antibiotics and medications to deal with the venom. She has a wound on her face that she suspects will become a lifelong scar, Mm -hmm. but she ultimately got the last laugh. She took the octopus home, cooked it, and ate it. What? What? She says she's been getting a lot of flack for online. (laughs) Okay, if it's venomous, like I understand there's a difference between venomous and poisonous. 
But you still don't want to be eating a creature that has toxic well, substances inside it. Unless you are the kind of woman Biscaglia is. <laughs> I because, guess. quote, I'm not here to judge anyone. If they want to judge me, so be it. They have nothing better to do than, you know, ridicule someone for doing what they love to do, she said. <laughs> this is put my passion. on her face. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in her defense, this is how she closes it. This is my passion. I fish, I hunt, and I'm a forager. And we all eat, right? Yeah, I don't have a problem with her <laughs> fishing and eating an octopus. What I have a problem with is she has this octopus that is clearly venomous and then ate it. Like if, uh, mm. And that was after she put it on her face for a photo op yeah. and then did nothing for 48 yeah. hours. Anything that bites you, <laughs> you need to be aware of infection on the wound, if nothing else. Like, that's absolutely insane. Oh. Well, um, you and your science, get out of here. I know. And the thing is, I'm I'm predisposed to be afraid of octopuses because, first of all, I mean, octopuses are adorable. But the the scariest animal in the world to me, and this is true, the blue ringed octopus. Have you guys ever heard of this thing? Mm, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm-mm. It's this adorable, tiny. It's like two or three inches wide. It's this beautiful octopus in like Australia Aww. with these gorgeous blue rings. Also, one of the deadliest creatures on the planet. There's no antivenom. Well, <laughs> like 20 minutes, you're dead on the beach. And the thing, they're so beautiful. And everyone, anyone who sees one is like, oh, and picks it up and they're dead. Because that's dumb monkey behavior. We need not put our grubby little hands all over everything that is beautiful. Just let it be. It's nature, y'all. Yeah. And don't put it on your face. Don't right. put it on your face. Absolutely. <laughs> like, d- don't put anything on your face. That's a that's an important body part. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from sciencealert.com. It's titled, Fascinating Study Gives a Unique Glimpse into How Dogs See the World. Oh. Is it black and white, like we've been led to believe? I believe it is still black and white. It's more that they're looking at their brains in an fMRI machine. So, yeah. So putting cute dogs in an MRI machine and watching their brains while they watch home movies might sound like a rollicking (laughs) good time just for its own sake. Or a clockwork orange canine edition. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But as a bonus, it can also be educational. (laughs) A team of scientists have done just that using machine learning to decode the visual processing taking place inside the minds of a pair of pooches. They discovered a fascinating difference between canine and human perception. Dogs are way more visually attuned to actions rather than who or what is performing those actions. Neuroscientist Aaron Phillips, then of Emory University, now at Princeton, says, while our work is based on just two dogs, it offers proof of concept that these methods work on canines. I hope this paper helps pave the way for other researchers to apply these methods on dogs as well as other species so we can get more data and bigger insights into how the minds of different animals work. The research, as Phillips noted, was conducted on two dogs, Daisy and Bubo. (laughs) The team had filmed three 30-minute videos using a gimbal and a selfie stick of dog-specific content. This included... This included dogs running around and humans interacting with dogs, giving them pets or treats. Other activities included vehicles passing by, humans interacting (laughs) with each other, a deer crossing a path, a cat in a house, and dogs walking on leashes. And I would just like to pause to note that this is the human idea of dog content, okay? This is entirely projection, but still, yeah. (laughs) Close enough. My favorite is cars going by. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) Daisy and Bubo were were each shown these videos in three 30-minute sessions for a total of 90 minutes while relaxing, unrestrained, in an fMRI machine. 
<laughs> this remarkable accomplishment was achieved through the use of training techniques designed by psychologist Gregory Burns, who first managed to take an MRI of a fully awake, unrestrained dog a decade ago. Wow. Yeah, and there's pretty cute pictures, actually. The dogs all look a little bit bemused and like, why am I doing this? Why am I inside it's so this thing? It's so loud in there. Yeah. I mean, they have such sensitive hearing. I would think that alone would be so unbearable for them. They do actually look like they have bands that tape down their ears. So Okay, maybe they like... stuffed them with like cotton or foam or something. Yeah, probably. And Philip said they didn't even need treats. It was amusing because it's serious science and a lot of time and effort went into it, but it came down to these dogs watching videos of other dogs and humans acting kind of silly. <laughs> the video data was segmented by timestamps to identify classifiers such as objects like dogs, humans, vehicles, or other animals, or actions like sniffing, eating, or playing. This information, as well as the brain activity of the two dogs, was fed into a neural network called LVIS that was designed to map brain activity to those classifiers. Two humans also watched the videos while undergoing an MRI. That data was also given to LVIS, which I think is <laughs> hilarious just to imagine. What do you think of this car going by, sir? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like now the humans are watching human-produced dog content. Like, right, right. this is... <laughs> Anyways, so the AI was able to map the human brain data to the classifiers with 99% accuracy for both object and action classifiers. With the dogs, LVIS was a little shakier. It didn't work at all for the object classifiers. However, for the actions, the AI mapped the visual to the brain activity with an accuracy range between 75 and 88%. Burns says, we humans are very object-oriented. There are 10 times as many nouns as there are verbs in the English language because we have a particular obsession with naming objects. Dogs appear to be less concerned with who or what they are seeing and more concerned with the action itself. Humans are very visually oriented, but for dogs, their olfactory sense is the most powerful with a much larger proportion of their brain devoted to processing smell information. Mapping brain activity to olfactory input might be a trickier experiment to design, but it could be enlightening too. Burns says, we showed that we can monitor the activity in a dog's brain while it is watching a video to at least a limited degree. The fact that we're able to do that is remarkable. I mean, maybe then they can actually generate better dog-centric content if they can actually see what the dog is seeing instead of what we think they want to see. Yeah, it turns into this whole, like, spin-off company that's just about dogtainment. Like <laughs> oh, dogtainment! How awful would it be, though, if, like, you're doing these fMRIs on all your dogs all the time as a, you know, matter of course to find out what your dog likes, and it turns out your dog likes something awful. Like, they only <laughs> want to watch, you know, CSI murders. And you know, it would just be dog butts. Nothing but dog butts. You hope. But, like, what if, <laughs> what if the dog actually likes cooking shows, and you're like, oh, no. He can never bake a cake. He's going to spend his whole existence sad. But this is his dream. And it is and clockwork orange. <laughs> We've come even more full circle. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. All right. Well, it's never a good thing when an article's title contains scare quotes. See if you can guess where they are. This article from New Atlas is called Relatively Low Cost Plan Would Cool the Earth's Poles by Two Degrees Celsius. <laughs> Relatively low cost. <laughs> yeah. So mm -hmm. the gist here is that climate change is bad. We all know that. But one of the things that's turning out to be even worse than we thought is that the Arctic and the Antarctic are warming significantly faster than the rest of the planet. You know, you hear that magic number of we want to keep warming under two degrees Celsius. But in fact, Arctic temperatures have already risen by more than three degrees in the last 50 years. Oof. And whatever this does to the overall temperature, it really speeds up all those rising sea level models in particular. 
because those ice shelves are starting to go a lot sooner than we'd originally predicted. Like some of them are going Mm -hmm. right now. The Thwaites Mm -hmm. Glacier in particular has been nicknamed the Doomsday Glacier because it's the size of Florida and it's, quote, hanging on by its fingernails. Basically, yeah, there's already warm liquid water underneath it. And when it cleaves off and floats away, it's going to matter. So while on the one hand, we are still looking at ways to control climate change overall, there has been a certain shift in parts of the scientific community to say, actually, we need to focus on the North and South Poles specifically right now. And this means that some technologies that maybe aren't ready for prime time over the whole planet are being considered for this part of the world where nobody lives. Specifically, a new study has laid out a plan to use stratospheric aerosol injection to rapidly cool the poles back down. This is the same sort of cooling that you see when a volcano spews tons of ash into the sky or, say, a dinosaur-killing meteor strike throws a cloud of dust into the air that blocks out the sun. And it should be noted that everything I'm about to say is entirely theoretical and not an actual plan yet because, as the article notes, the side effects could be nasty and the politics would be near impossible. Yikes. (laughs) But, you know, scientists get paid to imagine theoretical scenarios. So theoretically, what would it look like? Well, first of all, it couldn't be a one and done treatment because the sulfur dioxide that we'd be injecting into the sky would slowly fall back out of the sky in the form of acid rain. And again, as the article notes, no scientist wants to drench the last remaining polar bears in acid rain, but humanity finds itself between a rock and a hard place. So we'd have to do this aerosol injection every year going forward. The good news is the ideal time to do it is a four-month window in the spring and early summer. And because the seasons are swapped in the northern and southern hemisphere, we would save money by having a single fleet of basically like crop dusting type planes that could Mm -hmm. alternate their seeding patterns between the north and south poles following the seasons. So let's talk about this imaginary fleet of planes. In order to achieve two degrees of cooling, we would need to inject 6.7 teragrams or 14.8 billion pounds of sulfur dioxide each year over each polar region. Good God. The study found that existing aircraft can't carry enough payload to a sufficient height to get the job done. So they proposed a custom-built stratosprayer called the Sail 43K. They also say that the planes would ideally want to release their payloads along the 60th parallel, or roughly the latitude of Helsinki, Alaska, and Siberia, because the troposphere is lower there compared to the poles, so the planes wouldn't have to fly as high, and they're confident that the air circulatory patterns would then carry the sulfur dioxide toward the poles and not toward the equator, which seems like a really big inflection point for something going terribly wrong, but they're confident, so, you know, they're confident. It does also introduce a problem because while the 60th parallel in the northern hemisphere is almost all land, the equivalent location in the southern hemisphere is almost entirely ocean. The southern tip of Patagonia would basically be your only launching point, and the appropriate airfields down there actually sit closer to 54 degrees latitude rather than 60, but the researchers are pretty sure that'll be okay too. This is a highly theoretical paper and doesn't seem okay (laughs) in a lot of ways. The project would require 125 SAIL 43Ks flying a total of 1,458 missions per day during the four-month injection period at each pole. Each plane would take off, climb for 30 minutes, vent their entire load of sulfur dioxide within two minutes, then spend 30 minutes coming back down and an hour loading up again for the next mission. It would equate to approximately 110 operations per hour or slightly more than the world's busiest airport, 
So the research team does note that some infrastructure upgrades would need to happen, especially in southern Patagonia. But the good news is it would take about 15 years to build this fleet of planes. So they say the airfields could be made ready in time without a problem. Hmm. And the price tag for all of this? Well, it would be around $11 billion a year, which sounds like a lot. But the team notes that it's only about a third of what it would cost to implement a global aerosolization effort with the same cooling target. Basically, they're saying you guys are already considering this crazy plan. If you're going to do it, you should put your money where it's most effective and just screw the polar bears. And also <laughs> screw the 1% of the world's population that does technically live in those areas. But not for long. Have we, I mean, have studies been done about long-term effects on widely dispersed aerosolized sulfur dioxide in areas that are not the Arctic? Because they're not <laughs> going to just stay localized. I mean, that's kind of the thing. Everybody's scrambling to say, what would this look like? And it's all guesswork. But one of the things they don't mention at all is something called termination shock, which, again, it's a theory. We don't know what would really happen with any of these large-scale geoengineering things because we've never tried them. But the theory of termination shock says that when you block the sun with particulate matter in the air, you're not actually getting rid of the heat. You're just trapping it really high up. And if at any point in the future you then stop seeding the air, all that heat suddenly settles down on you all at once. So oh, once you start something like this, you literally cannot stop or you will roast everyone alive in one fell swoop. Like, it's not wow. a great idea. Mm. Yeah, That sounds mm. very sustainable. Animal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, the well, year I mean, the planes go out, we're all dead. <laughs> sulfur dioxide, like, an endlessly replenishable, renewable resource? My understanding is there's a lot of it. And theoretically, I mean, we could reclaim some of it. We catch all that acid rain, you know? You're literally just building another greenhouse outside of the yes. greenhouse we already have. What? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know no. what we should do to address our overconsumption and eradication of resources? We got this resource over here. <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, the authors of this paper do say none of this is a great idea, we mm -hmm. should just use less carbon. We should stop mm -hmm. what we're doing. Oh, okay. but, it's one of those. That's yeah. fair. Yeah. But they are yeah. very much saying, look, y'all, if you're going to do a crazy option, you should maybe destroy only the Arctic poles and not the whole planet, <laughs> I guess. For like, now. In the agency yeah. world, we call this the dead cat option, which is yes. so horrible. But you include it so as to make every other option you've already recommended that much more attractive. There you go. <laughs> so it's the dead cat option. I like Ugh. that. I like that terminology. I'm going to use it from now it's on. It's awful. I wish I had not perpetrated it. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Now for something completely different. The Smithsonian Magazine has a bit about a Nebraska man who makes the world's longest journey by pumpkin boat. <laughs> what? Yeah. Huh. Dude took a trip down the Missouri River and it took some 12 hours. And yes, there is a picture and I highly recommend you see it because it's a dude in a tank top sitting on what looks like one of those small coolers with the handle down inside of a giant 846-pound pumpkin. Wow. And Dwayne Hansen, Nebraska resident, celebrated his 60th birthday by setting sail and traveling 38 miles down the Missouri River in the dang thing. Now, the purpose of the trip, which began the morning of August 27th at the Bellevue Marina and culminated 12 hours later in Nebraska City at the Riverview Marina, 
was to earn, of course, the Guinness World Records title for longest journey by pumpkin in boat. <laughs> now, believe it or not, before Hansen, the record holder was Rick Swenson, who sailed the Red River between Minnesota and North Dakota by pumpkin boat in 2016. Uh. This is not a new thing, y'all. <laughs> And it didn't happen overnight. He was inspired to break the record after attending a three-day pumpkin growing seminar in Portland, Oregon five years ago. Hansen spent years on the project, eventually naming his prize pumpkin Berta. <laughs> the pumpkin was large enough for Hansen to fit inside after he carved it out. He transported the pumpkin to the launching point on top of trailer. He then hopped inside and took off for the day-long journey with family members and friends cheering him on from along the banks. And then throughout the next 12 hours, he fought to stay afloat as an array of obstacles like rocks, sandbars, and waves <laughs> threatened to tip him over. Quote, you've got to be on top of it the whole time. That's how boats work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So to comply with the Guinness World Records rules, he had asked non-family members to witness the event. So attendees included some Bellevue City officials who took photos and videos along the way. Then it goes into this interesting history. Do you guys know much about the Guinness Book of World Records and how it came about? All I know is it's by the beer people. And it, it sort is. of started as a lark because people would argue in bars. And so they're yes. like, oh, we'll tell you. But like, yeah, this was basically our, you know, Google version one when you're like, I remember this thing, but I'm not entirely sure. And it came about after, believe it or not, Sir Hugh Beaver. <laughs> he was the managing director of Guinness Brewery, and he went on a hunting trip to Ireland in 1951. After failing to shoot a golden plover, he debated with his hunting party over what the fastest game bird was, only to realize they couldn't find the answer in any reference book. So unnerved by the group's failure to arrive at a consensus during their pub argument, he recruited twin brothers Norris and Ross McWhorter in 1954, and he tasked them with putting together a reference book of facts and figures. The first edition was published on August 27th, 1955, incidentally, the same day that Hansen set sail for the pumpkin expedition 67 years later. <laughs> and then since then, Guinness World Records sold over 150 million books. I'm not really sure whether Google has completely displaced it, but regardless, Hansen's record is not quite official yet. Kylie Galloway, a spokesperson for Guinness World Records, tells CNN that the organization has received his application and is currently in the process of reviewing it. I guess you must have to, like, pay, like, some sort of fee to say, I'm applying for this record, consider me. Because otherwise, oh, absolutely. I mean, how be else would they stay afloat? That's insane. <laughs> yep. I mean, it's been good business for a while. But again, I can't. Im I mean, it is an authority and Wikipedia is still debated as an authority. So it should still have some value, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I if the kids aren't finding it on TikTok, it doesn't exist, right? <laughs> I mean, I can remember like those scholastic book fair things. The Guinness Book of World Records was always included. And there were always mm -hmm. photos of the good ones, like that person with the fingernails that went down to the floor. <laughs> and, like, yeah. Like everybody always. Always wanted to look at those in school. So I get, I get it. I see the appeal. Yeah. I mean, whatever your freak flag is, if you want to have that tied to your name until somebody usurps you because they attended a pumpkin growing conference in Portland, <laughs> Oregon, that path is open to you, my friend. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from TheGuardian.com and it's titled Saturn's Rings Could Be Remains of Moon That Strayed Too Close. Say science. Uh -oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the research based on data from the final stage of NASA's Cassini mission suggests that Saturn may have been ringless for almost all of its 4.5 billion year existence. But about 160 million years ago, an inner moon strayed too close to the gas giant, causing it to be pulled apart. The hypothetical lost moon has been nicknamed Chrysalis. Jack Wisdom, a professor of planetary science at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and lead author of the study, says, Just like a butterfly's chrysalis, this satellite was long dormant and suddenly became active and the rings emerged. Hmm. Wisdom's team initially set out to explain why Saturn is tilted by about 27 degrees on its axis. Theoretical models had indicated that the tilt was probably due to Saturn being trapped in some sort of gravitational resonance. As the Cassini mission, which orbited Saturn from 2004 to 2017, filled in the details of everything from the inner composition of Saturn to the dynamics of the planet's 83 moons, the original explanation fell apart. These new details suggest that Saturn had, at some point in the past, fallen outside Neptune's grasp. This led the scientists to search for potential disruptive events that could have caused this. Wisdom said, We found that we had to propose an extra satellite and then get rid of the satellite again. Wisdom and his colleagues ran simulations to determine the properties of the hypothetical moon. These suggested that between 100 million to 200 million years ago, Chrysalis entered a chaotic orbital zone and experienced a number of close encounters with Saturn's moon, Titan. It eventually came too close to Saturn, and this dramatic encounter ripped the moon into fragments, leaving a debris-strewn ring in its wake. The loss of Chrysalis would explain Saturn's present-day tilt and its rings. It would also be consistent with measurements of the chemical properties of the rings, which date them to about 100 million years old, but which some had dismissed because it was not clear how the rings would have materialized so late in the planet's history. Hmm. Wisdom said, I think we provide a pretty convincing argument. And yeah, that's where the article ends, but I do think it's really interesting to note that the traditional depiction of Kronos, the god associated with Saturn in ancient times, is of Saturn devouring his sons. You know, there's nice. that one image of Kronos yes. ripping the head off. Like, yeah. yep, I see uh, it right now in my brain. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it's very interesting that, you know, you kind of have this ancient depiction that maybe came from an artistic or inspired source of some kind that also aligns with maybe something that really happened in space. So that's yeah. very mm-hmm. interesting and very cool. He's got a moon corpse just sort of orbiting him forever. Yeah. (laughs) Memories of that. I mean, it's it's almost kind of sad if you were to anthropomorphize the planet. (laughs) It's interesting that it's never fallen down to the surface. Like, that's one thing that I've always sort of been fascinated by and admittedly done zero research on. I'm sure there's an answer. (laughs) But like, it's, you know, it's going around in circles out there. But like, smaller things that go around in circles, they fall out of the atmosphere and they strike us like little itty bitty meteorites. Mm-hmm. I've never understood why Saturn's rings don't disintegrate and go down to the surface of Saturn. But Yeah, I, I also haven't done any research yet, but I do know that Saturn being a gas giant, maybe that does happen mm-hmm. and it just goes into the giant gas thing and becomes part of the gravity well or something like that. Yeah, Astrophysicists, you need to let us know. Yeah, yeah. please email us. Thank you. <laughs> do, do the work and educate me and for free, please. Yeah. <laughs> well, with that figured out, next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, this next one comes from Atlas Obscura, and it's called Remembering When America Banned Sliced Bread. Banned it? Yeah. And if you had to guess, what historical era would you say this probably happened in? World War II. Yes, of course it was World War II, because that's when all the weird historical food trivia happened, right? (laughs) World War II had such a huge effect on our food supply in this country, and we're still feeling the effects of it to this day. But- 
Before we get ahead of ourselves, yes, the short-lived ban on sliced bread happened in 1943, which was actually only about 10 years after sliced bread had been invented in the first place. I, I should clarify, obviously, people had knives. They could slice bread for thousands of years. But we're talking about commercially sliced bread that came in the package already sliced. The first prototype for an automatic bread slicing machine was patented in 1912 by Otto Frederick Rovetter, but his machine and all the specifications and notes he had on it were destroyed in a fire in 1917, at which point he pretty much had to start over from scratch. So it wasn't until 1928 that the Chillicothe Baking Company in Missouri first purchased and began using Rovetter's invention, which they described at the time as the greatest forward step in the baking industry since bread was wrapped. Which I thought was hilarious because the expression now is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And at the time they were like, since bread was wrapped, what a brilliant thing. <laughs> Make bread whole again. Right. <laughs> and it remained kind of a local thing until 1930 when the Continental Baking Company first released its preservative-packed Wonder Bread. And this was the thing that America fell in love with, right? It had an aggressive nationwide marketing campaign, and it soon became synonymous with the convenience of the modern kitchen. And we've already started to get a hint here of why the government felt the need to ban it for a time during World War II. Because Wonder Bread was full of preservatives, not just because they wanted to be able to ship it nationwide, but also because the very nature of sliced bread is that mm -hmm. once you've exposed that soft inside to the air, it starts to go bad much faster. Yep. So even with the chemical preservatives, sliced bread had to have thicker layers of wrapping than unsliced bread in order to stay fresh, which is what led the wartime ration-conscious government to say, maybe we shouldn't be wasting resources wrapping sliced bread when we could be using less wax paper on unsliced bread. Mm. Theoretically, there was also an element of not wanting to waste steel on making new bread slicing machines. But that was really a straw man argument because all of these bakeries already had their machines and the government could have easily said, well, sorry, we're keeping the steel and called it a day. But on January 18, 1943, Claude R. Wickard, the Secretary of Agriculture and head of the War Foods Administration, declared that the selling of sliced bread was completely illegal and people immediately lost their minds. As just one example, Sue Forrester of Fairfield, Connecticut, wrote a letter to the editor of the New York Times saying, quote, I should like to let you know how important sliced bread is to the morale and saneness of a household. Oh. She, <laughs> she said, my husband and four children are all in a rush before, during and after breakfast. Without ready sliced bread, I must do the slicing for toast. Two pieces for each, that's ten. For their lunches, I must cut by hand at least 20 slices for two sandwiches apiece. Afterward, I make my own toast. 22 slices of bread to be cut in a hurry. Which, I get that she was trying to prove a point and things were different then, but unless you're Michael Phelps, that's an insane amount of bread to be eating. <laughs> like, two sandwiches per person? Wow. Yes. Oh. Her school-age children are supposedly eating two sandwiches for lunch every day. Also, for the record, she's claiming that she puts 12 slices of bread in the toaster every morning, and with the amount of time you'd have to stand there and wait on that, you'd have time to slice up the rest of the bread. Like, I'm not buying it. <laughs> But regardless, she was not the only one who was pissed off. Just six weeks later, Wickard rescinded the ban, though he never did acknowledge the public backlash. He simply claimed that the financial savings were less than anticipated, and it turned out there was plenty of wax paper to go around after all. And that was the end of it. The war dragged on for another three years, but at least the people had sliced bread. <laughs> it really shows you how quickly we become accustomed to new comforts, too, mm -hmm. you know? 
like instantly the moment, you know, we just had this thing and then they take it away and we're like, no, you can't do that. That's been with us forever. It's the best thing yeah. since sliced bread. My and- household <laughs> can't function without it. Like, yeah. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. We went through a little period when I was growing up where my family started buying like sort of fancy full loaf artisanal bread mm. that you had to cut yourself. And part of the deal was like you had to know how to cut it because it came mm-hmm. in these circular loaves. And mm-hmm. there was a pattern where, because you didn't want to cut it directly across, because then the middle slices would be super long. Yep. And the ends would be short. So you had to do like this you weird You have to carve it cut. like a turkey. Yeah, exactly. And there was a whole set of instructions on how to carve. And I was just like, I'm just not going to eat bread. Like, this is, <laughs> <laughs> this is not worth it. So I do get it on that level. But yeah. also, like... There's a war on. Come on. Like, for defeating Hitler, I guess I would yeah, do it, probably. Yeah. And <laughs> packaging, boy, that would have been a nice uh, avarice to nip in the butt a lot earlier. That's true. And frankly, if we could just go back to wax paper, that would save mm-hmm. us a lot, too. I mean, it wasn't mm-hmm. like they were wrapping it in plastic. But I guess we'll just have to start losing our creature comforts one by one until we're back to <laughs> appreciating sliced bread. Next link. Next link. All right, this one's a bit heavy, but it's also kind of amazing. From the BBC News, we've got an article titled Cancer Rules Rewritten by Air Pollution Discovery. So basically, researchers at the Francis Crick Institute in London say that they have cracked how air pollution leads to cancer. And the discovery transforms our understanding of how tumors arise. And what they showed was rather than causing damage, air pollution was waking up old damaged cells. This breakthrough marks a new era, according to Professor Charles Swanton, one of the world's leading experts, and it may now be possible to develop drugs that stop cancers forming. Hmm. The classical view of cancer starts with a healthy cell, right? It acquires more and more mutations in its genetic code or DNA until it reaches a tipping point and just grows uncontrollably. But there are problems with this idea. Cancerous mutations are found in seemingly healthy tissue, and many substances known to cause cancer, including air pollution, don't seem to damage people's DNA. So what is going on here? Well, the researchers who also work at University College London have produced evidence of a different idea. The damage is already there in our cell's DNA, picked up as we grow in age, but something needs to pull the trigger that actually makes it cancerous. And the discovery came from exploring why non-smokers get lung cancer. So the overwhelming majority of lung cancers are caused by smoking, but still one in 10 cases in the UK is down to air pollution. What the Crick scientists found on a form of pollution called particulate matter 2.5, which is smaller than the diameter of a human hair. So by contrast, PM10 would be stuff that's less than 10 microns in diameter. That's our dust, our pollen, our mold. But PM2.5 are teeny teeny. These are combustion particles, organic compounds, metals, and stuff like that. Hmm. So they did a series of detailed human and animal experiments. Sad, but hey, we're talking cancer here. And what they showed was breathing in PM2.5 leads to the release of a chemical alarm, what they're calling interleukin-1-beta. This causes inflammation, and that activates cells in the lungs to help repair any damage. But around one in every 600,000 cells in the lungs of a 50-year-old already contains potentially cancerous mutations. These are basically acquired as we age, but appear completely healthy until they're activated and then become cancerous. 
And even more crucially in these studies, researchers were able to stop cancers forming in mice exposed to air pollution by using a drug that blocks that alarm signal. So the results are basically a double breakthrough, both for understanding the impact of air pollution and the fundamentals of how we get cancer. Yeah. I mean, if you could take this drug preemptively, like, Mm -hmm. you know, you work in a place with horrible air pollution. Yeah. And you just take this drug every day. I mean, uh, uh, maybe the drug has horrible side effects. and So you don't (laughs) want to take it just for fun. But like you Mm -hmm. could just take the anti-cancer drug before you ever have cancer. That's insane. Dr. Amelia Lim said something to that effect, quote, it's super important. 99% of people in the world live in places where air pollution exceeds the WHO guidelines. So this really impacts all of us. This could lead to a new era of molecular cancer prevention. And just like you said, the idea of taking a cancer blocking pill if you live in a super polluted area, not science fiction. Yeah, I mean, and what are the odds that this substance only causes lung cancer? Like, this sounds like a generic inflammatory thing that probably causes tons of types of cancer. Yeah, I mean, the fact that we're starting to learn more about long COVID acting as a, quote, trigger that basically blooms underlying autoimmune diseases that may have been just kind of lying in wait and to activate them. This activation thing is kind of a science tech paradigm that could really be useful in isolating exactly when and how to do what to just nip it in the bud. I mean, granted, it's not a great future to imagine we all have to take our anti-cancer drug every day forever, like the entire population of the earth. I mean, sure, it's better than people dying of cancer. I'm just saying as a (laughs) as a solution. Modern humanity loves the silver bullet solution. You can put it in a pill. Come on now. (laughs) That's true. I'll take a pill. It's fine. (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Scientists Try to Teach Robot to Laugh at the Right Time, The Dumbest Way to Solve a Maze, and China Discovers Stunning Crystal on the Moon. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. As always, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. Thank you.